Well, we have a lot of work to do, so we'll trust the Lord. You have to listen fast in some areas, so uh, trust that the Lord will help us know when that is. Uh, we do have a pop quiz uh, uh, to get us started, though. An epistle is an, it says multiple choice, so don't answer quite yet. Okay. Uh, tonight we're covering uh, epistles, and the epistle is simply another word for an apostle's wife, an, an electronic epistle. Maybe it's a maybe it's a letter or all of the above. What do you think? It's a letter, indeed. Our brother was correct. That was a tough one. Uh, that's all it is. So an epistle is merely a letter. It's a transliteration of the Greek word uh, that we get from which we get epistle. So uh, all we're talking about tonight, not all, but what we're talking about tonight are New Testament letters, which most of the New Testament is. Okay. Now, uh, Duval and Hayes go through a few characteristics of them, so I want to go through those. These are uh, fairly weighty and worth uh, meditating on, so uh, we do want to spend a little time talking about those. Um, Duval and Hayes had a, a great description of what any, any letter, it didn't have to be a New Testament letter. Why, why, do we write, why would we write a letter? Okay. Sure. I like how Duval Hayes speaks of letters as a substitute for our personal presence. So, are you more excited to, you're probably more excited to see someone and talk to them, since you can't be with them, if you could not be with them face to face, are you more excited at getting a text, email, or a letter in the mail? A letter in the mail. There's something, something happens to us when we see a handwritten letter in the mail, because we know that there's, there's incarnation behind that. It's not just the same font that you're using with everybody else that you're texting or emailing. This is a person's handwriting. You're imagining them sitting down and writing and thinking where they wrote it. They're putting themselves into that letter. Same is true for New Testament letters. Uh, they're a way to bring the author near when the author can't be there in person. And Paul says that over and over, doesn't he? I wish I could get there. I want to get there. I hope to get there. But in the meantime, when I can't, I've sent so-and-so with a letter. This is the next best thing to me being there. Okay? They're not... They're not form letters. Uh, they're bringing the author near. But uh, the New Testament letters aren't merely substitutes or bringing the author near to a congregation. Uh, they're authoritative letters. They're to be obeyed. And not only are the letters uh, bringing the author near in an authoritative way, who's other, who else are they bringing near to the congregation? Christ himself. We, we are to receive the letter from Peter or Paul or John or whomever as though Christ himself were here now instructing us and teaching us, you see. Uh, that's why the apostles often begin, as, uh, whoever, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I'm coming on his behalf, so you listen to me as though you were listening to him. That's a big difference, isn't it? We, so we can't sort of pick and choose what we like about a letter or not. This is, this is Christ. Um, in a sense... Uh, the, the, the apostolic letters are recreating Christ's own ministry with his disciples, it, aren't they? As Christ taught us now, we're bringing him to you by way of this letter. It's as though Christ himself were with us, walking with us, helping us through this or that situation. I like this quote from Duval Hayes. P, uh, Paul, Peter, and John write as more than just friends and acquaintances offering personal advice. They write as apostles, as witnesses to the resurrected Christ. 
uh, I suspect that if you went to a guy's open casket funeral on Friday, you were there, saw the whole thing, saw the body in the casket, and then that guy showed up to church on Sunday, would your life change? Yeah, entirely. And would you listen to somebody who said, listen, I was at the funeral Friday, I was at church Sunday, and the guy that we bury on Friday, I sat next to him at church. I think I'm going to want to listen to what they have to say. That's what the letters do. They're bringing the resurrected Christ, all of his power and authority, near to a congregation, a number of them. So they're personal, they're situational. So uh, this is something of a famous um, way of explaining New Testament letters. They are like reading the transcript of, a, of, of one side of a phone conversation. So if you're sitting next to someone, they're on the phone talking to someone, you're writing down everything you're hearing, we don't know the other side, right? We have to kind of piece together, oh, you're, okay, so he's saying this, therefore they must be asking that. Or the reason he's talking about this, they must be struggling with this or that, you see. So no, no one letter is a systematic theology that we build a whole deal around. They are all situational, addressing issues brought up to the apostles through messengers or what they're hearing on the streets or something like that, some issue in the congregation or issues that they're trying to help deal with in a gospel way, applying the teachings of Christ in very specific ways. Not all congregations were the same, right? The Corinthian church needed reigning in. In fact, Paul says things like, guys are... I know you're believers, you're in Christ, but my words are acting like unbelievers. They need it reigning in. The Galatians need freeing up. You Galatians, you're, just, you're, you're way too tight about this law business. Loosen up a little bit about it. Every congregation is different. Every letter is different, therefore. Now, I, this is worth dwelling on. Most of the New Testament being letters, personal, situational letters, of all the ways that Jesus could sustain and instruct, form, shape, build, mature, perfect the church. He chose to do it through a number of down-to-earth, pretty raw and gritty letters. What does that, try to ask a leading question, what, was that, what does that tell us about Christ's ministry to the church? What does he intend It has to be practical, right? So, so the, the sort of people Jesus forms is a people for whom he died, raised, uh, buried, and raised. And, and they're not to sit around and just talk in third person about all the stuff they learn and various uh, doctrinal points. No, no, the, the kind of people he forms are people who get face-to-face with one another and love well. That's how we're going to do it, right? That the whole Testament, most of the New Testament are letters, the way that Jesus forms his community is we're going to get in each other's face. We're going to try to figure out how the gospel looks between you and me. How you and I need to change or a congregation needs to shape, you see. Uh, the, the spirit forms a certain kind of people. There, there's, there's no other kind of Christianity than the one that is incarnate of an unseen kingdom. Right? Jesus is recreating his own ministry that was seen and touched and felt and heard, tasted. He's recreating that in his people. Now, I, I don't have this here. I'm going to get a little bit preachy. Uh, 
Um, Paul, Paul refers to Jesus in Colossians as the, the fullness of God. And he refers to the church in Ephesians as the fullness of Christ. So, as Jesus is the fullness of God, putting all the excellencies of God on display. What is God like? Look at me. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. But all of the divine excellencies for us to see and touch and taste and feel and hear. If Christ is the fullness of God in that sense, and then Jesus says that the church is the fullness of Christ, then what? What what are we then? We're we're the incarnation of all the excellencies of Christ. You want to know what Jesus is like? Get around a bunch of, hopefully, get around a bunch of Christians. What would he say to me? How would he love? What would he do here? Get around a bunch of Jesus followers, and that's what he would be doing. Because he wrote us a bunch of letters that are incarnating his ministry among us. that makes sense? The personal, situational, they're laborious. You guys know this. An author would have used a, this is the fancy 25-cent letter word. Uh, you can impress your friends at parties. An amanuensis or a secretary to write his letter. So, so Paul himself isn't necessarily in prison with his own piece of paper. He's sitting maybe walking around his cell or whatever, having a secretary write this down. Sometimes it might be, write down every single word I say. It could be, here's a thought that I have, write that down. Nevertheless, they're using secretaries to write these letters down over and over again. So you'll find at the end of a letter, Galatians, Paul says, signs at the end. As if to say, I've endorsed everything that's written. Let you know this is really from me. Here's my signature. That's really my font. So you can trust that it's from Paul. Um, you had to be a big shot to use any sort of sort of official government postal service. So if you're trying to get a letter somewhere, you better have a buddy or somebody traveling along the way, which is how the New Testament letters got spread around. Every June, November, when we go tonight, I got two suitcases full. Of, some guy in Nigeria sends books via Amazon to my house, suitcases full. There's no way to get anything there unless you want to give your kidney to try to ship something to Nigeria. So, at any given time, I got two, two suitcases full of books. He said, this has been uh, a year and a half. Just books after books, just filling this thing up until I can get there. This is what Paul is writing a letter. I hope somebody's traveling along the way. to this. I'm going to send this group of guys, and hopefully they can deliver the letter to Colossae or wherever. The average citizen had to rely on friends. And Paul had a number of trusted friends he could use. All, all that to say... Can we rejoice in all of the variables that the Spirit controlled so that we can have these letters? Some guy in a Roman prison under house arrest has a couple of buddies traveling to wherever. The Thessalonians ate one letter in a guy's pocket. Hope he doesn't get robbed, stolen, mugged, killed along the way. Gets a letter to the church, one letter. And somehow, 2,000 some odd years later, we all got a copy of it. All the variables the Spirit is attending to, to make sure Jesus serves us well. And there's this continuity now, 2,000 years plus, uh, using the Old Testament. So they're personal, situational, laborious, and they're communal. I think we miss out on this because it doesn't matter what I think, I guess, but we're, we're so accustomed now to we all have a a Bible, personal Bible in our laps, and we sort of sit over it, and it's sort of us and our Bibles. Nobody in the Bible ever had that experience. Have you thought about this? 
Nobody in the Bible ever had a Bible. Nobody sat over the Bible over quiet time. Every New Testament letter was communal. Written to be read out loud, probably by one of the guys Paul sending with it. For all the con- and you don't know when a letter showing up. Can you imagine? You're at your blacksmith's shop or silversmith, whatever, whatever you're doing. And words, Paul has sent a letter. You don't know this is coming. There's no prep. Paul has sent us a letter. He's written us. He sent so-and-so to ask about what we should do about divorce and remarriage. What we should do about giving. How do we help the church? Whatever it is. And he's responded to us. Can you imagine? Let's all get together now so we can hear what Paul wrote. The whole congregation. Even... Hopefully tonight we'll wander a little bit through Philemon. That's written to one guy, but he introduces it to the church that meets in your house. So this is to you, but it's to be read to y'all. Right? Not everyone was literate. Not everyone could read. Nobody could take a, not everyone could take a letter home with them. Right? So, I mean, this is remarkable. Can you imagine having your name called out in a congregational letter? What, what if you ran across Euodia, Syntyche? What, what are you going to think? Philippians 4, what did Paul write to them? You tell those gals to get along, man. They need to get it together. They're sisters in the Lord. They know better. They need to, they need to figure it out and, and get it together. And for 2,000 years, we've all thought about that. We, so if you and I, in glory, run across Yodi and Syntyche, what are we going to do? I don't know if we'll do this, because we won't have the inclination. Would we have the inclination to be like, oh, my word, there they are. <laughs> I wonder if it worked out for them. I hope it worked out. I don't want to get in the middle of that. Can you imagine? But that's what, this is the nature of the New Testament church. Demas, loved the world, left, forever immortalized. And there's po- a lot of positive references to folks, too. Can you imagine that? There's this uh, communal nature, not only to the letter, but to the processing of the information. So can you imagine hearing uh, Ephesians 6, masters and slaves in the same group, parents and children in the same group, husbands and wives hearing, wives hearing what, what Paul, what Jesus via Paul is saying to the husbands, what parents are saying to children and vice versa. So we're all hearing what everybody needs to hear from Jesus. We, we all don't have our own so, sort, of, sort of private interpretation where we sort of work the gospel out on our own. Everybody knows everybody else's business because it's in the letter that we all heard read over and over. New Testament letters would have been exchanged, so any given church would have had their own guy sort of copy it for their church library and pass along a letter so on and so forth. But they're personal and situational, the laborious and communal. That makes sense? Any questions or thoughts there? Yeah, amen. They were coming so concrete in here. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Can you imagine? What if we didn't have, and there are some places in the world where this is true, where we didn't have a Bible? Like the only time I'm going to hear the Bible is when I get together with the folks who are hearing the letter read or hearing a scroll cited or something like that. To hear, amen, to sort of devote yourself to public reading. Oh, that's fine, because we're going to get together. Well, not all of us. But what if I didn't have a Bible at all to read during the week? Now, if I'm going to hear the word, I've got to hear it when you publicly read it. How hungry that. Excellent. Uh, I don't want to. 
we'll, we'll run through this. So there, uh, every New Testament letter has a certain form, follows the same form as any ancient Near Eastern uh, letter in Greco-Roman world, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, fairly self-explanatory. Uh, every letter is going to have an introduction. We usually sign our name at the bottom, right? Sincerely, so and so. Our dear so and so is at the top at the first of the letter. Back then, it was the from came first, and then the two. Uh, some sort of greeting: "Hey, grace to you, peace to you." Uh, and then there's a prayer. Okay. Duval Hayes used this. I mean, pick a New Testament letter, and it fits the bill. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul begins with from. We don't read all of this. There's two. There's a button that doesn't click. And then the greeting, grace to you, peace, something like that. And then some sort of prayer. Um, maybe something to say here. It, it, it would do us good. And if, um, yeah, Carson wrote a book on this uh, Call to, is it a call to spiritual reformation, or, or he examines Paul's, all of Paul's letters, and I mean all of Paul's prayers, uh, which is a great, great meditation. Um, but we do we do well to consider uh, how we express how we specifically pray for one another and for our church. So in this prayer in First Corinthians, Paul, I, I thank God for you because the grace of God given to you in Christ. You're enriched near Him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. Well, what does Paul get into in the letter? Speech, knowledge. Uh, in this way, the testimony about Christ is confirmed among you so you do not lack any spiritual gift. What does Paul get into in the, in the letter? Spiritual gifts. You see? See how specific it is? My, my prayer is informed by Christ's ministry to you in specific ways. So we do well to think about that. Um, he ends the letter. He speaks there. Uh, that he will strengthen you to the end. And he ends the letter with an appeal to standing firm in the faith. So we do well to think about how practically we pray for one another. Um, I, I need that reminder rather than just sort of general uh, statements. And it could be generic for anything at any given time. But I, I know you. Jesus knows this about you. And he knows this particular thing that this congregation needs. Ergo, we're praying for this particular thing for this particular people. And we rejoice to do so. It becomes less platitudinal. Uh, there's a body, my word, the body is whatever the author thinks it should be. So it's whatever issues are facing the congregation. Uh, James focuses on instruction. Hebrews, persuasion of the glory of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. Galatians needed a little uh, pat on the fanny about what they were doing. And Philemon, as we'll try to get into this evening, will be exhortation. Conclusion, Whatever. Hey, I hope to come see you. I'm sending so-and-so. Hey, tell so-and-so I said, hey, hope they're doing well. Uh, hey, folks are with me. They say hey to you. Uh, maybe there's some rapid-fire instructions. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. It's sort of, oh, by the way, let me get these down uh, while I'm thinking about it for that congregation. Uh, and then some sort of autograph. And then there is uh, benedictions. Can somebody, we have one of these every week, and any, certainly any liturgical tradition does. Uh, can someone break that word down? Our smart guys know it. We get that benediction from Latin. Break the word down. Yeah, bene, good, diction, word. A good word from God. It, it is a blessing, and it's not just a way to end the service. It is, we're, we're sort of a conduit of whatever the grace and peace, strength, uh, 
perseverance, whatever it is, we're a conduit that, so that the benediction is affecting what it's saying. It's not just a way to say bye, a baptized way to say see you later. It is, we're now, whatever the letter has said, whatever the author has instructed, all of this is possible if God helps. And so now, with the instruction, God help us. And in fact, he will. Excellent. You guys, uh, you guys doing okay? All right. Remember the interpretive journey? Pastor Jordan introduced that sometime. Uh, that Duval and Hayes lays out for us. Do you remember the, the first step on that journey? Extra credit. Grasp the text in their town. Remember the, the images of uh, a river crossing, and so you've got a town over there that's distant, and there's a river to cross into your town, and so you've got to bridge this gap. Uh, so here are the, the interpretive journey applied to, specifically, New Testament letters. The interpretive journey is the same for any genre, and we're going through that the rest of this class, I mean the, the, uh, this year of the class. Uh, when it comes to New Testament letters, to grasp the text in their town, it is highly beneficial to read the whole letter at one sitting. Out loud, if you can. The more senses, this is the way God made us, right? The more senses we involve in taking in information, the more it sticks. So if we're reading it out loud, I'm kind of feeling myself, I'm hearing myself, I'm, I'm involving three senses in getting that information. And that's better than just kind of sitting there letting my eyes run across the page. So the more senses we can involve, the better. Uh, I don't know if there's a Philippians candle or a First Timothy candle that you can light or something like that, but, but whatever it is. Whatever senses you can evolve that say, it's going to help the text take root. So read it from start to finish when it comes to a New Testament letter. As you know, all of them can be read pretty quickly over, a lot of them just over a cup of coffee. Uh, some may be a little bit longer, give or take. Um, doing that helps us get a, Duval and Hayes use this language of terrain. It's a good way of saying it. Get a terrain of the letter. What's the tone of the letter? Is it, they're going to be pastoral, but is it a little more forceful? Is it a little more gentle? Uh, is there a lot of, you know, is Paul, def- is it me, us, them? Who, who, is, who is who in this? Right? What are the instructions? Uh, putting together the various tools that we've gone through already, uh, putting together various context clues. And I, I like Duvala Hayes regularly remind us to think paragraphs. So don't think necessarily a word in a sentence. I'm thinking paragraphs. I'm thinking flow of thought uh, using the various tools that we've gone through already. Uh, and then if you need to, peek at some of those historical cultural contexts, resources, uh, if you need to. But you're getting the whole letter, and again, you're trying to take, we're hearing one, only one side of the phone conversation. So as we're reading, we're kind of, okay, why is, he, why is he saying that? They must be thinking this. They must have asked about X because he's saying Y, you see. Uh, well, that's the second one. Reconstruct the other side of that phone conversation. Kind of reading between the lines, piecing together uh, what we aren't able to hear on the other end of that. What's Paul clear? Why is he spending so much time clarifying this? They must be struggling with the dangerous flip side of that doctrine or something. Make sense? Capture the literary flow of thought. So you remember, uh, 
oh, remember, we do this. Uh, like the kids' menus, and you have the little, there's a picture, but it's numbered, and you draw a line from one to two, and two to three, and you, and you outline this, whatever it is. You know that, right? This is like when we read a New Testament letter, that's what we're doing. Just make the connection. Go from the connecting words. If this, then that, so that, therefore. So let me draw, that's one, then he's drawing that to two. I'll draw that line to three until you get to, the, to a stop. Those are fairly recognizable. You'll know, Pastor Jordan said, you, know, you kind of know where these things fall the more you get into it and fly over the text. Um, so it's just tracing those, just tracing the lines through there. We do that when you read it all out loud and all at one time. That's how the New Testament church would have heard it. They would have heard that whole letter read, I don't know how many times, uh, together. So, step one, graph the text in their town. Remember that? Okay, so next time, when it comes up, you remember that. Okay. The second step, measure the river's width. Remember this? Oh, sorry. Uh, so, sometimes, Duval Hayes, sometimes, in the, especially in the New Testament, sometimes that river is a creek. It's, the distance between them and us is not very wide. They're New Covenant Christians, most all of them, a lot of them Gentile, so already we're a little bit closer to them than Isaiah or Hosea or something like that. Uh, and, frankly, churches are still messed up. Right? Every problem that the New Testament letters address, like, my word, that sounds like our church. That sounds like such and such. We struggle with that same thing. So every church, since those letters are written, have been messed up in virtually all the same ways. Okay? Struggle to love well, struggle to be wise. And uh, much of Christendom, we're a little bit immune from this here, but much of Christendom still suffers under some sort of corrupt, imperial-type rule. So it's very close in some cultures. Like, I, I know exactly what that means. I know what that suffering looks like. That's our story. Now, what might be some wider parts of that river? There's probably no wrong answers here. What could be some wide parts between a New Testament congregation uh, and us? Language. Language. We got to figure out what that word that what's that word mean to them? Can we get close to that word here? Who knows? Uh, maybe we can. We try to try best. What's another wide part of a river between a New Testament congregation and us? Relationship within the. Um, Sure, yeah. Yeah. When you have largely agrarian household economies versus all of us driving off to work every day to the office or something like that. Sure. What about food sacrificed idols? We don't necessarily struggle with now. I, I, I thought about that. thought that's, that may be a wide part of the river, but then I thought I, that might be narrowing as corporations start to throw their weight behind sodomy and ungodliness. So, so, so maybe then... Maybe that wide part of the river is narrowing for us. Who knows? Uh, but it wasn't as prevalent uh, or not as prevalent for us. So we're just we're looking at the ways that how far do we have to travel here? Is that closer to us or further away? Then we cross the, remember this principalizing bridge. We start, Kostenberger and Patterson have a it's an invitation to biblical interpretation. And they use this language of normative. So these principles are normative. They're specific to that congregation. The principle is normative for every congregation. Okay? Timeless applications. True for any church at any time, in any place, among any people. 
So the author might just state an explicit theological principle. Uh, John, uh, I, I mentioned here James 1.13. Uh, God does not lie. He's not tempted by evil and therefore doesn't tempt anyone. Right? That's an explicit principle. Um, or an ethical principle or something. We don't have time to go through all of these texts. And is that part of a broader principle? Is it, is it an explicit one? Or, say in James, uh, do not let anyone when he is tempted say what? I'm being tempted by God. That's, that's specific. That falls under the umbrella of, that's because God is not tempted by evil and tempts no one. So, God is not, so, so don't, in other words, and James goes on to say, you and I sin because we want to. And don't say it's God's fault. Don't blame God for putting the temptation in your way or something, or falling into temptation and such. So are, are there specific principles as part of a broader principle? Um, tons of examples like that. Duvall Hayes didn't mention this. I, not, they certainly would and could. Um, is to, is to pay close attention to if the New Testament author is crossing his own bridge from the Old Testament. So the New Testament authors are taking thousand-year-old text and coming to them, right, and crossing their own bridge from Old Covenant Israel into New Covenant Church. Don't muzzle an ox while he's threshing. That's Old Covenant law that Paul applies in New Covenant Church. So pay attention where a New Testament author does that. He's, he's helping the, build the bridge for us and giving us some liberty of understanding our Old Testament a little bit better. Fourth, consult the biblical map. So the principle that we come up with, step three, you've got you to now test that against the rest of Scripture. Does it fit? So, so can, does this principle apply at all times, or does it start bumping up against other fences, if you will? Letters are situational, so it is crucial that we sharpen any, any principle so that we have a consistent biblical witness. Famously, between Galatians and James, Paul says, no one is uh, saved by works. And James says, what? You cannot be saved apart from works. Like, what? So we can't, we got, we got to make sure we test the principle in light of the rest of Scripture, does it bump up against something, or is, is it uh, is it being um, sharpened by another biblical principle? We want to be careful about that. And uh, not that we should ever. Um, shake our fist at Paul, <laughs> but, you, but you want to say when you read that, like, and man, Paul, and you used Abraham in both of them. You used Abraham to uh, James used Abraham, Paul used Abraham to prove both of their points. Like, oh, man, which is pretty genius. So that, so that is crossing a principalizing bridge, isn't it? Paul's taking Abraham from the Old Testament, applying it, overlaying it, justification uh, by faith, overlaying it on how the gospel works itself out in the life of the congregation. Or consider uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul had the vision, whatever that was, and in order to keep him humble, what did God send him? Thorn of the flesh, which Paul called messenger of Satan, but he didn't go talking to Satan about it. He talked to God about that. And how? Many, and Paul prayed how many times? Three times. Three times. One other thing, go away. Three times. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he 
specifically had a list and said, okay, on this date I prayed for the, I, I prayed it for enough time, for three times, and came to realize what? Yeah, it's just the Lord's providence for me right now. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, what does Paul say? Pray without ceasing. Well, which is it, Paul? You said you only prayed three times. And now you're telling me to pray without ceasing. Well, you got to, he's not, we're not constructing the whole, he doesn't mean pray without ceasing in the same way that he prayed about the thorn in the flesh, you see, or vice versa. He's not prescribing that we pray exactly three times and wave a magic wand, and if something happens, it happens, and you stop praying or something like that. Um, so we want to be careful of those principles, make sure they're consistent. That's part of the glory of digging into the Word, finding that gold. Um, step five, grasp the text in our towns. So we've crossed the bridge, the town's over there, the bridge, principles. They, they're consistent with the rest of the Bible, and so now we grasp the text in our town. Now we start taking that principle, overlaying it on for real names, faces, situations, hearts uh, in our own life and congregation. Duval Hayes had these number of grids, if you will, number of prisms. So where does the principle intersect with the situation? So here's the principle, and this principle applies in situations like this, however many there are. And then you might think more specifically. But that situation sounds a lot like this particular one in this particular congregation. And therefore, how ought we to obey and respond to that kind of situation? That makes sense? I'm gonna, these, this is from Kostenberger. I'll skip those. Okay, uh, so here's the practice test. And we'll see if this, we'll see how well this, this does. So our text we want to consider, and we're going to do, what time we got? Okay. Uh, we're going to consider Philemon 15 and 16. Okay? Now, this is why I encourage, we want to read the whole letter at one time. Philemon's short. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, or remember reading it all. So we're going to assume that we've done that. We've read the whole letter. Okay? But could somebody read, this is 15 and 16. So someone read these two verses. Out loud. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Amen. All right, step one is what? In their town, okay? So what's, what's the overarching view? What's the big picture of what's happening in that town from having read the letter? What's the big story? Yeah. That's right. So Philemon was a slave. Uh, you know, Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. Somehow stole something, ran away, becomes a Christian, I wonder, in prison, where it just so happens Paul might have been in prison. And so now Paul's trying to put them back together. Now the gospel makes a demand on this relationship. We can't wink at it. We can't act like it's, no, it's just all water under the bridge. Paul is compelled. This has to be put, the gospel demands this be put back together now. Right? If we're going to say we're Christians, we have a whole separate, different set of rules now. Jesus instructs us, and we have to put this back together. So that's the big picture. Um, what's the river's width? So what's a wide part of the river? Yeah, okay. We, we don't. Have a slave situation like that. 
We don't have household economies. That, so this, this letter was written to Philemon. It probably was the church leader of the church meeting in his house. So we don't have household economies that coincide with church life. We all sort of are out and about going to work wherever we go to work every day that has little to do with us watching one another work or something like that. It's another wide part. They're not led by imprisoned apostles or pastors. Okay. What's, what are some narrow parts? Where are we close to this type of situation? Reconciliation. Yeah, amen. We've all been wronged. We've all been by unbelievers and or we have wronged. We've either, perhaps we've stolen or been stolen from. Okay. Uh, we've all been confronted with difficult relationship dynamics with someone who has, who has now become a Christian. Or, or maybe we're the ones that have now become the Christian since the offense. Okay. And now we've got to put this thing back together. Paul ran that with his own conversion, didn't he? He went to the church of the Barnabas, and they're like, I don't know about this guy. And Barnabas vouched for him. Uh, perhaps we, are, we have been or are compelled to restore fellowship with someone who has deeply wronged us, but who's now really, who's now really repentant. That's getting close to home. Right? So those are rivers with. So what are some principles? I know we're doing this on the fly. What, what, so what is a principle that we could derive from that. Could it be, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I guess I am, that God often uses sinful, the sinful, painful decisions of others that offend us personally. And, and maybe those are unbelievers who do that. So God often uses those types of sinful, painful decisions worthy of his judgment to accomplish his redemptive purposes in our lives in church. That sounds like a decent principle. God often uses sinful, painful decisions of others who've wronged us, stolen from whatever it is, to accomplish redemptive purposes. And you think, okay, now, now what do we have to do? What's the next step? Biblical map, we have to Make sure we bump that up against uh, the rest of Scripture. So does, does, this, does this work? Does this work broadly? I think so. What are some examples in Bible that that, that principle was in play? Joseph. Joseph. Genesis 45. Excellent. Well, you meant for evil, God intended for good. Were his brothers sinful? Yes. Did they need to repent from that? Yes. Did God save an entire nation because of it? Yes. Okay. Or in Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that we talked about earlier. Sort of thorn in the flesh. And Paul eventually gets to the point of, I'm just going to receive this as the Lord's providence. This is, the, this is just the way that God's going to do it. Now. And so Paul says, I boast in my weaknesses and hardships and distresses and such. Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good. So we, so we think that principles is holding up, right? Now, the fifth step is what? Grasp the text in our town. So now it's taking that principle in those paradigmatic situations and now overlaying that on our life in church. 
and I use this text intentionally because about, I don't know, five or six weeks ago, was in Philemon, part of whatever plan I was in. And I read these verses and said, that's it. Uh, and I, I asked Byron for his permission to use them as an example. He's okay with it. Whether he liked it or not, I was going to do it. Um, that God said, yes. Here's a kid whose painful, sinful decisions stole from us, in a sense, and ran away. And we're like, what? what how, God, how, how in the world, God? Because like, like, we didn't want that. You don't want that. And, 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 and in these verses, Jesus draws near and says, that's just how I'm going to do it. Could it be that perhaps, though he stole from you, Philemon, though he was wrong for doing that, that this was just the means God was going to get the gospel to him, and so that now that he comes back to you a brother and not a slave anymore? Whether that happens with Byron, we pray it does. But, that, but that's how we get from the other side of the river to now. And we all have situations in our life like that. And we think maybe that's just the way God's going to have to work it out. And in some sense, and, and Paul tells Philemon, he says, look, I could pull rank on you. I am an apostle. So I could command you to do this. But I'm going to appeal to you as a brother. But the, this is just the way the Lord's going to work this thing out. Which is glorious, isn't it? That makes sense? Any thoughts, questions? I know that was a lot in a hurry. I have an example. In, when we were living in Senegal, there was a man from Nigeria who lived in, and he had swindled a bunch of Nigerians. He got a bunch of money. He was going to go to America. He made it as far as Senegal, where we were. He ran into me, and we began to go around together. And he grew up in church. He thought he was a Christian. But the more he saw the interaction and heard the gospel, he realized he wasn't a Christian. And so he disappeared for a while, and then he called me up one morning, and he said, are you going to church? I said, well, I can't. He said, I'm going to be baptized. He'd come to Christ. And afterwards, he said, the next step is to go back to Nigeria and give these people their money back. And he did, and... They were astonished to see, let alone to get the money back. And so, when I think of this story, I think of the same yeah, thing. Amen. Amen. God brought him to Senegal in a in a in a immoral way, in a sense, an ethical way, but it was to bring him the gospel, yeah. so that he could go back mm. and take the gospel. Yeah. Amen. Amen. It's, it's it's interesting to try to imagine the other side of the conversation that Paul might have had with Onesimus. So undoubtedly he sat Onesimus down and said, look, we've got to put this, I wish you could stay with me. We've got to put this thing back together. You're going to have to go back. So, so apparently he had the conversation with Onesimus, like I've got you prepared to go back. And now the, the thrust is on Philemon, like I'm sending him back and you've got you to receive him. That's just the way it's going to work out. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just the boots on the ground working out of the gospel right? this isn't, we don't imagine Christ we don't have a theoretical Christ or an imaginary church this is how love works itself out excellent y'all thank you uh, I'm sorry to bump up a little bit late